Alexander the Great Podcast Episode 3. If you would please write a review on iTunes, I will send you a gift. I will read your review at the end of this episode as I have a review ready to be read out now. You can also donate through PayPal and Patreon. I will have a link on the description of this podcast. Follow me on Facebook and I will let you know when I have a new episode out or you can subscribe on YouTube. Cheers, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Let's talk about the changes that Philip brought into the Macedonian army. We saw last time that Philip was crowned king of a state on the verge of complete destruction, the state of Macedonia. The Macedonian army is made out of farmers for the most part at least. They've had very little training and minimal equipment, equipment which they had to pay for themselves. The only thing that Philip has going for him in the military department are a few mercenaries that he must have used in the first few battles he fought against the Illyrians and the Peonians. Also, he had some soldiers that he had been training in the province that his brother, Perdikas III, gave him upon his return from Thebes. Philip was kept hostage in Thebes for a few years. Perdikas dies in battle against the Illyrians, along with 4,000 other Macedonian soldiers. You can't see me, but I've put soldiers in air quotes. All this in the year 360 BC. One of Philip's first jobs is to set up a proper army. Macedonia's first permanent army. They were getting paid, but it wasn't all fun and games. Training was tough. There were stories of officers getting whipped because they were seen taking a hot bath. (laughs) Uh, What a bunch of pussies. He needs an army made out of soldiers. Let the farmers do their thing. They're also important. They're also important, but we need proper disciplined soldiers that can do their thing. While studying the Macedonian army, what you first notice is the famous sarisa, a weapon we know for sure was introduced by Philip, a 15-foot spear of 4.5 meters for most of the world. You would need two hands to be able to use this thing. Greeks had previously used longer than usual spears. This is nothing new to some extent, but uh, the longest spear up to that point was used by the Athenian Iphicrates and his marines, which uh, reached 4 meters or 13 feet. The longest spear to ever be used after Philip uh, was used in the 2nd century AD and it reached 6.5 meters, which is 21 feet. It was getting kind of silly after that. Uh, A spear was usually two and a half meters or eight feet. This is what the normal classical age Greek hoplite used. When I say classical age Greece, I mean 499 to 323 BC. So yeah, the average Greek hoplite would also carry a shield that weighed 20 kilos and had a diameter of one meter or three feet. This was used as a defense weapon. If anyone gets near you, you just slam the shield in the face and that should sort it out. But it comes at a cost of being agile. You won't be able to move very quickly holding a 20 kilo spear, a 20 kilo shield. Philip doesn't give a fuck about that shield. There's no point in carrying a 20 kilo metal plate if the other person is not going to get near you. He adopts a more lightweight shield called Pelti. He gets the idea from the Thracians 
who had been using it for a while. A pelti is cheaper, smaller, only 60 diameters in uh, 60 centimeters in diameter, and have very light weight. Speed was of significant importance to Philip and later Alexander. Now let's talk a bit about the Greek phalanx. A phalanx is pretty much a group of guys next to each other that create a wall with their shields and their muscles. Usually they were arranged in a rectangular formation and each guy was covering himself and the guy next to him. The first few lines, the first few lines were doing most of the work. Whenever the general would see that his front men were getting tired, he would order the second line of defense to swap with the first. They would be nice and fresh and able to pick up the pace. This is why the Greek phalanx would create more famous generals than famous soldiers. The term phalanx or phalaga in Greek can be found in Homer's Iliad, although it doesn't have the same meaning. Homer uses it as a general military formation. Miltiavis will have a very successful phalanx formation against the Persians during the Battle of Marathon. Epaminondas, we saw in the last episode, came up with his own phalanx formation and now it gets revamped under Philip. Theodoros says that he imitated the dense formation of the Trojan heroes. Now I have a confession to make. Until recently I believed all soldiers had a sarasa of the same length, but this is not the case. The first few lines of men had a shorter sarisa, and the second line slightly longer, the third line slightly longer, and so on. The longer sarisa was used by the last few lines of soldiers in the phalanx. Because of its length, the sarisa had a counterweight on the grip, the side that the soldier was wielding it from. Also, because of its length, it had to be wielded with two hands. So the Macedonians are not holding a sword in their hand like the rest of the Greeks. The sarisa is made out of cornus wood, I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly, or more commonly known as dogwood. In Greek, it's krania, which I think gets its name for the Greek word skull, kranio, Wood that is so hard that can break a skull. <laughs> That's what she said. Sorry. Uh, the same kind of wood that, according to Pafsanias, the Trojan horse was made. Now, Macedonia must have had good wood. Uh, we talked last time about how Amindas, Philip's dad, convinced the Athenians to help him against the Chalcidikians because he traded them the good old Macedonian wood. The first three lines of the phalanx had their sarisa parallel with the earth and from there every every army line would hold the sarisa slightly higher than the one in front of them until the last few lines were holding uh, their sarisa straight up sometimes it was the first three lines it could be the first two lines depending on the battleground sometimes philip would use a simple phalanx of eight men deep this would be called a coalition or in greek synaspismos and other times in a wedge formation the soldiers would hold the Saris at the three-quarter mark. The front end was in front of the line ahead of you, so everyone needed to be synchronized so you didn't stab the person closest to you. As a, as a result, training had to be tough. Soldiers had to listen to their officer and be obedient. It must have been quite a scary spectacle, spectacle, <laughs> spectacle and completely innovative. No one had ever seen anything like this before. It reminds me of my time in the army. We have, a, uh, we have conscription in Greece. And your commander used to say, 
my commander used to say, I'm going to make you bleed during training, but not because I have anything against you, because it means that less blood is going to be shed if we go to war. Training for them, for the Macedonians, included a 55k march with all their equipment. Uh, I had to do this in the army once, not 55, we did to a 50k and uh, consequently I couldn't walk for a week. I'm happy, I just had to do it once. The Macedonians, on the other hand, didn't have that luxury. So we can deduce that it was hard being a soldier under Philip. Spartan soldiers had seven slaves each, according to Herodotus. The Macedonians had to make deal with one slave per ten men, <laughs> so he's not really doing much, and each infantry infantryman had to carry around equipment weighing 30 to 40 kilos, which included his weapons, various medical supplies and farm tools. They had to learn how to live off the land. He wanted his army to be self-sufficient. They would even train before battle. All right, lads, we're going to face the Athenians in a bit, but how? But we have time for a quick workout. How does a 30-stadium march sound? That's roughly 5K. Uh, glad you like it. All right, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Fuck, man. And um, where was I now? Philip and Alexander are going to change the depth of the phalanx often, depending on the needs of each battle. We now get a better idea of how they're able to pull this off. For this to work, you need discipline. There's a story of a soldier drinking water when he wasn't allowed to, and he got whipped. And not whipped as in your girlfriend is over-controlling you, whipped as in you're getting tied up and someone strikes you repeatedly with a leather strap. With Philip, we see that the term pezeteri first being used. Pezeteros means walking companion. Now, when you're a soldier and the king calls you his walking companion, it must feel good, right? It shows that we're in this thing together. Some historians disagree with this and they say that the military branch existed uh, since Alexander II, Philip's elder brother, and the name Peseteros means they supplement the cavalry. For Philip, the Peseteri are an elite part of the infantry. He would place this special unit on the right side of the Keras, Keras being the formation in total. The right side was also Philip's strongest side. So not the entire infantry. One of Alexander's changes was to name the entire infantry Pezeteri. Another change in the army that Philip introduced was that he split the cavalry depending on where they originated from. So you're from Pella, you go here, you're Thessalian, you go there, and so on. This creates some healthy competition among the cavalry soldiers, which is always good. Um, he has also created the Ipaspistes, or shield bearers, Sometimes they were also called bodyguards, which was probably their original role. We know they were seen as a special hoplite unit, and they wielded, they wielded a shield like the rest of the Greeks. They had a higher wage than the rest of the infantry. And again, they could have been created by Alexander II or Philip. We know for sure that they already existed before Alexander the third hour that our Alexander took over in 334. They numbered at around 3,000 troops. Philip also probably created their young royals. This was a team of youngsters that have noble Macedonian descent. Around 200 kids, teenage boys, 14 to 18 years old. They served in the Macedonian army, lived in the palace, and they would take care of the royal horses and take part in the royal hunting games. 
it must have been an envious position, all right? These kids are receiving the best possible education for that time. And mostly important, and mostly also important, is that Philip is creating an army men that are made into his liking. Also, by keeping them in his palace, it's not like they can run away and get to the mummy, and mother can't ask for her baby boy back. Now, this sounds slightly like a hostage situation, and it probably was to some extent. He was securing the loyalty of the most powerful families in Macedonia, and uh, something that we know that uh, Philip created for the Macedonians was the besieging engines. These play an important role in Hellenistic age, the age from the age following Alexander's death, as well as Alexander himself. He freaking loved besieging engines. Um, we think Philip got the idea from a Thessalian, Polidos. He saw Polidios uh, sketching some stuff and he thought, yep, I want that guy in Pella, definitely. We don't know when the besieging engines first appeared. Theodorus mentions them when Philip was besieging Amphipolis in 357 and he simply uses the term engines. So we have no idea what he used. It could have simply been something to offer to offer them some cover while the others were climbing the wall or something like that, we don't really know. In 348, while besieging Olynthos, he used mechanical catapults. We know he used them because he wrote his name on the projectile, you know, so you never know, <laughs> you never know, maybe they don't know who's besieging them, so we might as well just write our name on it. Uh, this kind of stuff, I'm sure you've seen it, still happens today. If you just Google bombs with messages, or you can check out my my site, alexandroscast.gr. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I've uploaded my favorite pictures, and you can also find pictures of the catapults that Philip was using. The first picture that you'll see uh, is a is something that we know that he came up with. This catapult uses a torsion kind of torque. I'll try and explain this later what I mean by this. Now a normal catapult, uh, what was used up to that point, it was like a giant bow that you might imagine Robin Hood using or you can still see people, you know, just a normal bow. And the part of the catapult that held the projectile was roughly 15 meters long, so 50, 50 feet long, just to take the projectile back and, and fling it into the air. Philip was the first guy to use a torsion torque catapult. Now, imagine you're holding a rubber band with your index and your thumb finger, and you have like a little pencil, and you're moving the pencil around itself, and uh, you know, while in the rubber band, and the rubber band would build tension. When you let go, the pencil will just fly off towards an unknown direction, but with some force. Philip didn't, obviously didn't have rubber bands and pencils and all that stuff, but uh, one of his guys created a catapult using this energy. Imagine a catapult with two pieces of wood on each side rotating around themselves and a rope that is connected to the two. This rope pulls back a massive missile ready to be shot at the enemy. These kinds of military innovations, along with the presence of Bolidos, are going to persuade guys like Viadis and Charias to join him at a much later time as uh, Alexander's group of engineers or for the Persian campaign. Now you might think, okay, so he's got all the tricks, he's doing all the, all the weapons and all the new things and all the new gear, but is that enough to transform the Macedonian army into the superpower that it's about to become? And the answer is no. You know, the changes have to be made by the right person, the right leader. 
Philip has sick rhetorical skills, according to the others. Also, according to the others, he was constantly calling the Macedonians to meet up and just talk to each other. Now, each time they talked to each other, they were getting braver and more courageous. He was also constantly improving his military tactics by equipping his men with the best gear and also training them to become unbeatable. Now, there is no timetable for when the changes were made. It probably didn't happen in a single day, but we're pretty certain that they were implemented during the first few years, giving the army time to adapt to these new tactics and training before even considering a Persian invasion. Alexander will find a perfectly trained army when he's crowned king. We know he appreciated it because Arian gives us a speech that Alexander made to his army when they had enough of him and decided to revolt against him in 324. Now this is my translation from, from uh, the translation of ancient Greek to modern Greek. So I hope it's good. But uh, yeah, it should be. It's close enough. Now this is what Alexander said. said. Uh, when Philip found you, meaning when he was asserted to the throne, you were poor and only had a few animals to graze. You lived in the mountains, you wore sheepskins, and you were barely fighting against the Illyrians and the Trevelyans and their neighboring Thracians, Thracians. Because of Philip, you are wearing cloaks instead of sheepskins, and he brought you down from the mountains to the plains. He made you worthy contenders against your barbaric neighbors, allowing you to seek salvation, not thanks to high walls or advantageous locations, but thanks to your own bravery. He turned you into citizens with laws and morality. Against the barbarians, you and your belongings suffered. He turned you into rulers, and he added parts of Thrace to Macedonia. And by holding the most important parts of land that are close to sea, he built commerce. He was able to secure profit through mining without any external threats. He turned you into rulers of Thessaly, before whom you would die of fear. He, he humiliated the Phocians, allowing us a wide and easy road to Greece instead of the narrow and difficult one. The Athenians and Thebans would also would always make Macedonia suffer with their raids, were humiliated to such a degree that with your help, of course, instead of paying tribute to the Athenians and being under Theban control, they now turn to us to seek safety. Afterwards, he went to the Peloponnese and sorted everything out there. He was named General of Greece and was appointed with unlimited responsibilities for the Greek campaign against Persia, though he preferred to share this glory with all Macedonians rather than just himself. Oh man, I fucking love that speech. Arian is so good. I don't know what we would have done. We would, we would, know, we, we would know quite a few things, but Arian is the best source for Alexander. And he only has two or three or four speeches of Alexander. So you know that they have to be, he, they, were, he, they were chosen carefully. Uh, Curtius has a speech in every 10 pages. Alexander apparently said this and this and this. So it doesn't really have much meaning. But Arian, I mean, when I first read Arian, I think I cried around this time. It's just so nicely written. Now, where was I? Yes, in the last episode, we saw Philip's first battle against Arielos. And as a and it ended as a massive success for him, and not just a military victory, but you know, think of what it does for Macedonian morale. The first, uh, the few that were second guessing his abilities as king now probably see him in a much more favourable light. 
And let's not forget that the kingship of Macedonia was kept depending on how happy the people that you are governing them. And of course you need victories, both diplomatic and military victories. This ain't no democracy. The democratic Athenians had to read out what they were voting on, so everyone would know what's happening. This took place at the Ecclesia, where every citizen had the right to say whatever was on their mind. Do you agree? Disagree? Arguments for and against were presented, and then they all voted. And lastly, after all this, they would execute. A king doesn't have to go through all the above. He does hold councils often, as our sources tell us, and then he just does whatever he has planned out to do. Demosthenes mentioned this in one of his speeches. He was trying to convince the Athenians to agree with him. He was basically saying, come on you fuckers, until we make a decision, Philip is actually doing. Now we're going to return to uh, our storyline a little bit. I gave you a few, um, a bit of just general information about the changes that Philip brought in. The year is 358 and Philip is gagging to attack the Peonians. He wants to start the campaign in spring. Winter was quite tough that year. And they were going through, this is the Peonians, they were going through a bad um, post-king kind of died situation. King Aegis died, this is. Philip, will, uh, he, want to see, he wants to see how much money they have, you know, what's going on there. You know, we would love to have a bit of that. And a few extra men for the army it wouldn't be a terrible idea. And that is pretty much exactly how it went down. We don't have much information about the battle. The other says he beat the barbarians in battle and forces them to obey to Macedonia. He incorporates the Peonians in the Macedonian army. So the barbarians are starting to feel Greek now. They get a new identity and Philip gets a new area that is close to a road that was used for commerce on the Axios River towards the land of the Dardanians. Right now, he can't really do anything with it, but in the future, he will. So, 242 regarding Philip's battles. The kid is doing all right, you know? But Macedonia's biggest fear are still the Illyrians. Perdiccas' loss is still quite fresh for all the soldiers. They will undoubtedly want to avenge the brothers' deaths. De desks? No, deaths. <laughs> <laughs> they were. They must have been uh, some soldiers that were eager to fight the Illyrians, but they knew that most battles didn't end in favour of Macedonia. There must have also been some that even when hearing the word Illyrian or anything Illyrian related would experience vicious flashbacks of their friends getting their head bashed that would then cause them to uncontrollably shit themselves. I can't say, um, what do you call this? Uh, PTSD is that it? Post-traumatic because this th this kind of thing didn't exist, you know, back then. This is a uh, PTSD is a modern const construct. Uh, but this was of course the case before Philip. After Philip, we now have proper fucking soldiers, soldiers with massive balls, soldiers with grit, and highly effective trained soldiers. Uh, but let's a little side note about the Illyrians. The rest of the Greeks didn't really have a relationship with them. The Macedonians create a little protection cushion. Uh, so the Athenians don't really know what the what a Illyrian warrior looks like. And that's mostly because the Illyrians are busy invading a much easier target, the Macedonians. Although the Illyrians live in what we call today Albania, they're not the same culture. The Albanians love to call themselves Illyrian, but they are not their descendants. The Illyrians never called themselves Albanian, they don't speak the same language, 
and there is little to none historical connection between them. Of course, they also don't have the same religion, but the same is true with today's Greeks and ancient Greeks. Um, they wrote like the ancient Greeks, but they were never allowed to compete in the Olympic Games. The same can be said uh, of the Macedonians. The first time they requested to compete, they were told to fuck off. This was back when Alexander I was king. The Philhellene, as they called him, which means um, a, a friend of the Greeks. So not quite Greek, you're a friend of the Greek. Uh, the Elanovites, or Greco judges, you could say, didn't acknowledge his Greekness. He then asked a second time, and this time he managed to prove this, that he's a descendant of Perdikas, a Greek that comes from Argos, which in turn means that he's a descendant of Timenos, Timenos, son of Aristomachos, and Aristomachos is the third son of Heracles or Heracles in Greek. Now we get all this from Herodotus. Herodotus is a really fun read. <laughs> you, if you're interested in this podcast, it means that you're probably interested in Greek history. Herodotus, in one of his, I don't remember which book, seventh or eighth book or something like that, he says that um, white men have white spunk because of their skin and uh, brown men have brown spunk. You know, this is, this, is, uh, this is Herodotus talking. This is the kind of thing that he likes to talk about. And he has other stories of, uh, you know, daughters pissing all over the fathers or something weird like that. But you should really read it. It's, it's really fun. <laughs> but uh, also Thucydides or Thucydides and other ancient sources mention that um, there was uh, Alexandros I, the Philhellene. So, we, so there's a very good chance it's a true story. Now, if you're slightly ignorant, you could just say that that proves they're Greek. However, it does raise the question, why were they told no the first time? And, but, you know, they were Greek, but a different kind of Greek. You know, they had a dialect, they had strange traditions, and uh, one that really stands out is that before war, they would cut a dog in half and have the army walk over the two pieces. This would apparently cleanse the army. But they were Greek, you know, they spoke the same language, they had the same gods for the most part, they also had a few gods of their own. Uh, they wrote in Greek, as we can see on the coinage, weapons and the few signs that remained. I will have pictures on my website if anyone's interested, or also on my Facebook page. Now we're going to talk about their battle with young Philip in the next episode. Hope you liked the episode. Now I will read out a review that was written by... M. K. M. Krupnik, M. Krupnik from Greece. Easy listening with a pinch of Greek wit. Wink is the um, title. Enjoyable and informative. Hope you keep it going. Well, thank you. I also keep. I also hope I keep it going. Send me your uh, address, and I will send you a little gift from the with the podcast. Now, my email is Alexandros. A. L. E. X. A-N-D-R-O-S dot cast at gmail.com or you can find me on uh, where am I? On Facebook and you can send me a message I reply to all my Facebook messages of course and I will let you know and just let me know your address and I can send you a little gift thank you very much